Welcome to Ontario Lab, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Sam Andrew. And I'm Alvin Tejo. Today, we are talking to Dr. Barbara Perry, Director of the Center for Hate, Bias, and Extremism at Ontario Tech University. Too often, we think of hate as an American problem, but it is alive and well in Canada and more organized and pervasive than we would like to believe. So looking forward to this. It's a good continuation on our conversation last week with Gail Nathanson. Spooky stuff, important. Stick around to the end of the pod for that. But first, I thought we could spend some time on what the Ontario legislature has been up to and not up to since it resumed business for the first time since December last week. We also got some news about the vaccine. So maybe before diving into the vaccine, is there anything COVID-related we feel like we need to get off of our chest before we move? Uh, take a break from COVID this week? My kids are at school, finally, after a snow day and two bus-canceled days. They are not in my house right now, and my wife is at work. This is the first time, I think, since December 15th that I've been home alone. How does it feel? It's amazing. I love it. I, you know, thought about not wearing pants today. Well, I mean, like on Zoom chats, you can only see waist up. That is a choice that is in everyone's in everyone's toolbox. I, toolbox is the word I'm looking for. <laughs> Except when other people are having Zoom meetings and you're walking around, you're going to walk into their Zoom meeting. So we were routinely having five Zooms at a time when my wife was having meetings and my kids were all in Zooms. Yeah. Oh, what a disaster was that. I am so glad that it's over. And I really hope we don't do it again for a third wave. On the third wave topic, I note that the Ontario case chart is trending up again as of today so that's something to look forward to i mean as we said last week the reopening does not seem great for keeping cases down but we did learn some more about vaccines this week so want to turn a little bit to that alvin and the province rolled out quite a thorough technical briefing on vaccinations that i think gave us more details on what it was going to look like so uh, maybe you can uh, walk us through a little bit about what the province rolled out vis-a-vis vaccines Right. So the province laid out its expected dose intake and its strategies for ramping it up, giving a more detailed look into how many vaccines we're going to get and when we're going to get them. At high level, starting at the beginning of March, we're going to go from less than half a million per month to 1.3 million in March to 2.6 million in April to June and almost 6 million in July. So during this timeline, we're going to start vaccinating older adults, starting with the 60 to 80 range, and then decreasing in five-year increments from then on. We're also looking at essential workers, which includes teachers, first responders, those working in food processing. And if you haven't watched uh, Last Week Tonight this week with uh, John Oliver, you should watch it. It's all about food processing. With a mix of mass vaccination sites, existing medical infrastructure, and mobile sites for those in high-risk or remote settings, that's how the province plans on doing it. After this, beginning in August, the province is predicting that we'll start mass vaccinations of everyone else, basically from August to December. So all public health units will have to develop plans for at least one mass vaccination clinic. And while it's not available right now, there will be an online provincial booking system, which is currently being piloted and will be rolled out. Something that I don't know why it took so long to get to this point, considering we knew it was coming, but it's coming. So some good news. Because we are Ontario Loud, I do feel the need to point out that in the transition period, the province has basically said that all people over 80 
will be able to get vaccinated starting in March, but have rolled that out through family doctors who were surprised by the announcement because they weren't told ahead of time. That's just another example how there's lots of room for missteps and delay here. But hope is very important. And I think there's some hope here that we're on the right track. Wondering what what do you guys think first takes of is this the right approach to, to roll this out? And where is there room for the province to potentially stumble where they should have had the foresight to, to see it? I have a few reactions. I think one, I'm continue to be impressed that neither the feds nor the province are taking much political heat over this whole thing. Another poll came out today that the Ontario PCs are are still north of 40% and the feds are still, the liberals are still clearly in first place. So yeah, I don't know if it's just, I don't know what to make of that because I think it's clearly not gone that great of the last few weeks, but maybe people just are accepting Canada's lot in this is outside the control of our politicians. But in any event, I don't trust this government to organize a bake sale. So I think that we should be skeptical. We should ask lots of questions. I think the fact, just as an example, that they rolled out or announced that family doctors would be responsible for contacting patients 80 plus and family doctors said they received no notice of that and have no idea how any of that will work. Not a strong start. Let's hope it gets better. But I think the military precision, to borrow the the military analogy, required to do 100,000 a day, every day for months, is like it will be one of the greatest organizational feats of our province's history. Is this our best team on the job? I don't know. We're going to find out. Yep. I would echo everything there. I will say that I was just so relieved to see a timeline with some specifics attached, like a commitment to mass vaccination sites, a commitment to a provincial booking system. I mean, let's not forget that this is the government that put provincial testing on Eventbrite. That is a thing I think we should never let them live down. But I was pleased to see some commitment to some basic logistical steps because I think it means that they think that they will deliver on them. That said, I worry about the balance here. And one of the things that does suck in our healthcare system is the reliance on primary care providers. My suspicion is that they're going to be heavily waiting for the public health-led infrastructure to come online to really get this rolling. To go from where we're vaccinating now to where we need to be is an 18-fold increase in our daily activity. And you cannot rely on a devolved system like Family Docs to deliver that. It just won't happen if they are a major part of the rollout or the major part of the rollout as they are as of this week. So it will all be about how long it takes those mass vaccination sites, that online booking system, those central resources that they have to come online. I think that is what will drive success or failure here. I mean, it's better for all of us if they do get it right. They just haven't proven that they can. I'm really worried about the online rollout. It was just, it's been such a mess. I think one of the things they were piloting is something that has already failed in New York State. And there's so many questions around how they're going to coordinate it and how they're going to organize it, how they're going to distribute it, how many people are not willing to take the vaccine. There's so many still questions out there that I don't think they've answered or they know to ask which really concerns me. So again, hopefully that it works out and everybody gets vaccinated, but until they get another opportunity, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. The last thing I'll say is that we are in a race against the new variant. We can avoid a third wave if we vaccinate quickly. The most non-encouraging thing about where we're at now is like, 
you could have known at the beginning of the pandemic that we would need an online booking system. And the fact that it's not ready to go right now is like a an interesting like that like why this was the most predictable thing in the world like christmas was like everything that has been really predictable and they seem to have missed it at least the right pieces are there so moving on from covid i thought it might be good to check in on what the ontario legislature is doing right now because it came back last week for the first time since december it has plowed through a bunch of business last week, a bunch of bills on the table, some of them government, some of them opposition, some of them private members' bills, and just take a stock of what we're doing, what our government in, is putting through the legislature right now. In a segment, I want to do in a little bit of a rapid-fire way called Good Bill, Bad Bill, Sketchy Bill. So I've written down a bunch of bills, and I'm hoping we can rotate describing what these bills are, and then react to them by deciding whether they are a good bill, a bad bill, a bill that we're not quite sure, but we're a little sketched out by, and maybe why we think that. So I will start us off. We're going to start off with major government bills. So the bill that made the most progress last week was a bill put forward by Minister Monty McNaughton, who is proposing a change to the WSIB Act, to the Workplace Safety and Insurance Board Act, that uh, will protect employers from increases in WSIB premiums. So WSIB premiums are paid by employers and they're calculated using an average wage across Ontario. So this I thought was really interesting. COVID-19 has resulted in job losses in lower wage sectors, which has pushed that average up, which pushes the insurance premiums on WSIB up. So what they're basically doing is they're introducing a one-year amendment to make a fixed price that will limit the in, uh, premium increase uh, to 2%, whereas if they just stayed with the current system, it would go up by 7.8%. It passed first and second reading last week, so they are fast-tracking this one, saving employers some money. Good bill, bad bill, or sketchy bill? I think this is good. The formula setting about wage increases is clearly meant to try to keep it humming along and not be frozen. I don't think it was meant to try to capture this kind of unusual event. And like 7% is a big increase for employers to pay right now. And I think it's from what I could gather from doing a little digging, WSCB can afford this. It's not as if their like insurance claims have gone way up as a result of the pandemic or anything like that. So this feels very non-controversial to me doesn't wsib have a huge surplus yes also yeah. that so like they also don't need seven percent more um, i agree i think it seems like housekeeping i also think it's like this government can make time for uh business in like the most minute ways but what is not on their agenda is my big question Fair. maybe i'll do the second one as well attorney general doug downey has probably put forward the largest piece of legislation from a cabinet minister in this last week which is an act that does a whole bunch of stuff it's a big omnibus thing but it's like the pcs have put it under this access to justice label so it will amount Amalgamate several boards involved in land disputes, there are five currently, into one central Ontario land tribunal aimed at making land disputes more streamlined. There are a series of amendments to the Judicial Appointments Advisory Committee to basically centralize appointment power in the Attorney General's office, but speed up the selection of judges. They are dissolving the Public Accountants Council and transferring
comparing governance of public accounting to CPA Ontario under standards that it establishes for itself. The current council is controlled through the lieutenant governor and council, which is basically the government. And CPA Ontario holds a share of seats on that board as well. So really, I thought an interesting move there. Continue remote witnessing of wills, which is weirdly on top of the government's press releases about this. That's the thing that they're running with. And removal of appeals to cabinet ministers under the Environmental Protection, Mining, and Nutrient Acts. And so there used to be mechanisms in these to appeal decisions under boards that were created under to cabinet ministers, and they are now removing that. So uh, this is a really complex one. There's, I think, probably different levels of implications for each of these things, but we're going to try and do it in one one label. Good bill, bad bill, sketchy bill. I'm going to I'm going to go with bad. I some of them I don't frankly know enough to react, but I think when changes are being made to judicial appointments, we've discussed that in the past that I don't think uh, that this government has the, the best interests of the judiciary and level-minded justice at the heart of those reforms and so I think there's reason to be cautious about those things and then secondary Everything this government touches with respect to land and development is developer friendly. And so I think it's obviously too early to say what will come of the Ontario Land Tribunal, but suspicion should be very high. Yeah, I think I'm going to say sketchy at at the very least, because, I mean, it's a number of things crammed together, uh, which kind of gives it an omnibus type of feeling, although it's all related to justice. But at the same time, I think when you're also opening up self-governance to accountants and you're removing appeals and removing default maximum payments and removing other boards for land disputes. Like you're getting rid of a lot of things that are that were put in there intentionally for a reason without necessarily figuring out how to fix it. Yeah, I think this is sketchy, Bill. I don't know enough about any of these things to, I think, put it in the bad bill category. But so some of the boards that are being centralized into the land tribunal have an environmental focus on them. They might not be operating well. Maybe they're helpful. Maybe they're not. But that is a feature. There are several environmentally focused boards that are getting amalgamated into one. Also, I got weirdly into on the weekend the CPA thing. I don't know how effective the current council is, but there is a government-controlled council that creates standards for accounting in Ontario, and now it is totally controlled by CPA, which is controlled privately. And that is a... I don't know if that's a good thing, a bad thing. Everyone on the board currently has a CPA designation, and so we trust CPA with that. But it does seem like a big coup for uh, CPA Ontario because they now control accounting standards in Ontario and need to check in with the government, but they get to make them, which is seems like a big deal to me. I don't know. It's like accounting is important. So yeah, this is one to watch. I feel like we could do a deep dive on almost everything in this bill to like sort of properly understand it. So that's what the government's put on the table in terms of like, big government stuff. What about the opposition? So opposition leader Andrew Horvath has proposed a commission to inquire into and report on the government's response to COVID-19 and make recommendations respecting the minimization of future harm, including loss of life in future pandemics. Hearings would have to be public and it would be set for a 12-month commission, basically, and would have to report back to the legislature, not the government. And this had its first reading this week. Good, bad, or sketchy? I mean, it's good. I, I think there's going to be a re- there's going to have to be an inquiry, a commission of some kind in the future, at all government levels to analyze the 
response and the reaction of governments during this pandemic. I think this obviously gets ahead of it. I mean, I, I want to judge it on the is it effective in getting the opposition's message across? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that this is a, this is necessarily specific enough. I think they called for inquiries into uh, the deaths at long-term care homes. I think that's a good one because you're specifically targeting something that is happening that this government could control and made distinct decisions on that have not been transparent, including why didn't they all get vaccinated first? And why did after the results we got last summer, did they not take those action items to heart to try and make it safer in long-term care homes? So, I mean, it. I think it's a good bill. I just think I'm not sure if it hits the mark that the opposition needs it to in terms of getting the attention it wants. Yeah, yeah. I think good bill. It reads just a little too political for something as important as this. I, some of the other things the NDP are doing this session a little bit more. And I thought that was interesting that this was the this was the leader's bill. So this is like the thing they wanted to put in the window. And I'm not sure it logically reads to people that the commission should be happening well, the crisis is happening. Like, I yeah, think that that was my point going to be the same, which is feels a little premature. Yeah. So, yeah, I think good bill, but, you know, politically, maybe not the best strategy. Fair enough. Moving on. Toronto Center MPP Suze Morrison has put forward a bill to amend the Residential Tenancies Act to prevent the Landlord-Tenant Board from issuing any evictions, as well as courts and individuals from engaging in tenant-removing activities like court orders until the pandemic is declared over by the Chief Medical Officer of Health. Good, bad, or sketchy? Good bill. This should have been Andrew Horvath's bill. (laughs) This is so important. People are getting evicted in zones that aren't in lockdown, basically. It's tied to the framework in a way that nobody understands. It's really unpredictable. People can't plan, landlords nor tenants. There should just be no evictions during COVID. Full stop. That's a strong message. I don't know why this is an Andrew Harvest bill. I agree. Good bill. I mean, the government should have done it. I think some municipal leaders have been talking about it. So get on your horse. This would be an opportunity for the government if they wanted to show some uh, bipartisanship to uh, to take this on as well, because they talk about this in a lot of ways, but they haven't done enough. So, yeah. Oh, and this one, I think we've covered Peggy Sattler's Stay at Home If You Are Sick Act provides seven days of paid leave and three days of unpaid uh, leave. In situations related to declared emergencies and infectious diseases, this would bump up to to 14. So this is important, I think, to note that this is not just for COVID, right? This is this is like a permanent change to our to to labor uh, relations in Ontario. Then Michael Cotto also tried to to amend the Employment Standards Act to have ten days of paid leaves for illnesses, injuries, medical emergencies, or other uh, matters. And employees would have to provide evidence if their employer wanted to, but it couldn't be health certificates, which is an interesting little nuance. Good, bad, or sketchy? I think these are good. I mean. The opposition parties, all three of them have been talking a lot about sick days. And I think that's one that they continue need to continue to harp on. The government's response that the federal government already provides some of those paid sick days in response to COVID is insufficient. And this government actually took away paid sick days that the previous government, the previous liberal government had implemented. So I think they should continue pushing this rock up this hill as much as possible, because I think they can be loud enough. And this is one of those things that's going to stick to this government in terms of them not being not willing to provide. 
yeah, this is one. I love to see it. Good bill. I think it's also good that the Liberals and the NDP are taking runs at this and supporting each other. I believe the Liberals voted in favor of the Peggy Sattler bill. And I hope the NDP votes in favor of the Michael Coteau bill when it comes time. I think that there is a creating a sense of opposition to the Ford government cross party here is what I'd like to see the most about this. And just using as much legislative time on this issue as possible is one that I, I think is is important. So yeah, love paid sick days. We big paid sick days fan here on Ontario Lad. One maybe just footnote on this is we, the feds announced late last week that they were doubling the amount of time for the federal sick leave provisions because one of the criticisms was 10 days is not enough. So now it will be 20, which is clearly the feds are doing everything they can to try to get out of the fray of this issue so that it's clearly on the provinces to fill in the gaps, which I think is a sensible strategy. Moving on to private members bills. These are my favorites. <laughs> private members bills, for, for those who may not know, are just that. Individual members of provincial parliament who put forward a bill that they often write themselves or get a group of you know interns or stakeholders to help them write. So sometimes you get some kind of wacky stuff. Now, I think keep in mind that there are very few slots. You get very few chances to propose a private member's bill throughout your term. So I always find it fascinating to see what people are prioritizing uh, and putting out there. And yeah, let's just dive into it. So MPP Mike Harris, not to be confused with former Premier Mike Harris, has proposed the Safer School Buses Act. This requires school buses to be equipped with four overhead amber signal lights and four red lights. Amber lights go on during slowdowns when they're slowing down. Red lights when the bus stops. The stop arm goes out as soon as the bus is stopped. This is a very specific thing that MPP Mike Harris wants installed on all school buses in Ontario. Good, bad, sketchy. Chris, you're our school bus expert. What do we think? Good bell. Great bill. Love this bill. Many people do not know that the fleet age of our school bus in Ontario is uh, shockingly bad. We are not driving around fleets of new school buses. In some cases, buses are have been run for many years past when you would expect. And so I like you preface that with not many people know as if this is like the type of knowledge that a well connected insider would definitely know. Like that's the most niche thing. <laughs> The age You're the only one who knows it. Literally five people know that. Yeah. But to have these kinds of things to guarantee them, you do need to make standards like this. So it is a good bill. I wish that this government would do more to adequately fund and or support the costs of implementing this because the the school bus, the government has very few tools to influence how money is spent on school busing in particular. And so this is a, a way to get at it. But there is a there will be a cost to this that will be borne by school companies who are supported by school boards, some of which are overfunded and probably do it, some of which are underfunded and probably will be in a bad place because of this. So a little nuance, but good on you, Mike Harris, like this bill. So another one that came out from Another government backbencher, Oakville MPP Stephen Crawford, is proposing the Protecting Consumers from Package Privacy Act. It's uh, basically creating fines, new minimum fines in situations where a person trespasses someone else's property for the purpose of taking, concealing, or destroying mail. This is Porch Pirates. He should have just called it Porch Pirate Act to, to find some fines, really, to get people on stealing their Amazon packages or food delivery things. I don't know. I mean, 
I guess that's important for right now. Thoughts? Sure. Good. I'm going to go with bad bill. I'm going to take a bad <laughs> bill here. So, like, first of all, this is coming from the MPP for Oakville. This is, you're already not allowed to steal someone's package. It is already a crime. It's already illegal. <laughs> is this the most pandery to Oakville concerned people that I've ever seen? If I go and steal your package, Sam, from your thing, you can charge me with a crime. And if you can convict me, I will, like, face consequences for that. I'm not sure new minimum fines are going to make it any more or less effective. But it is going to make it really easy. Uh, I could, for Stephen Crawford to go to all of the rich people in Oakville who may have gotten things stolen from their huge front lawns <laughs> to say. So, I don't know. It's like, maybe not bad, but just, this is not a priority for Ontario. I'm sorry, Stephen. It's unnecessary, right? I mean, it's redundant. Yeah. Like, you have a fine yes. where it's actually a crime and people could do jail time instead of, well, I'll just yeah. pay the $100 and maybe if it's worth more than $100, then I'll be fine. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I will note that there was a stat that they put out, though, that 33% of Canadians have had a stolen package, which is higher than I would have thought. Just a fun fact. Moving on. That is a fun fact. Moving on. Newly independent MPP, Roman Babber, who was kicked out for his kind of conspiracy theories around COVID and fun things like that, wants to lower all MPP salaries to the CERB rate. This is the best troll in the house that i've seen this was really um, good it's called the we're all in this together act this mpp wanted to lower every mpp's salary to the same rate as serb 500 per week during the pandemic until all lockdowns are lifted he sought unanimous consent he did not get it the government house leader paul calandra who is also very good at trolling decided to put his own motion and to only lower mpp roman babber's salary his individual salary to the serve rate and got unanimous consent for it. Everyone agreed, which is crazy to me. I don't know how that happened because the MPB himself could object and then it wouldn't be unanimous consent. So I don't know how he didn't catch the fact that he was getting this. Yeah, but it would have undermined his point, yeah. right? Which is that he too would, would be happy to do that, right? So, so, But then it was ruled out of order. Yeah, the Did speaker had to take this back for a couple of days because he wasn't sure whether or not this was in order or out of order. But I mean, let's talk about, I guess, the spirit of the bill and whether MPPs should be docked pay during the pandemic and stuff like that. No, it's silly. Yeah. It's silly. Our politicians are frankly underpaid, which I know is not a popular opinion, but like the salary should be at a rate such that people want the job. They don't feel like they're taking a massive, you know, pay cut. Now, I mean, that's coming speaking from a place of privilege, but I just mean you want good people to be your politicians and your, and your cabinet ministers. And no, I thought it was silly. Yeah. Bad policy. Great politics for all the reasons Sam said bad bill i'm glad the house put push back on it i'm also not sure are you just allowed to lower someone i guess it's the house so they can but can you just lower mpp well, no, I guess that, it the, that's why i got ruled out of order because it's set by yeah. legislation so a motion doesn't no and so they could have changed the legislation yeah. but again i'm in i'm with sam on this i mean mpp salaries in ontario are supposed to be tied to the federal rate at 75 percent, but they have not been since 2009 so they've been frozen since 2009 they don't have a pension there's no golden parachute that everybody thinks that they have in ontario that doesn't exist Exist. And what you end up doing is you end up attracting people, like I'll say, the former finance minister who got kicked out, who are so privileged that they don't need the money and they end up working there because they want to do it and not because it's part of their livelihood, right? 
So I think you want good people, you have to pay people for what the job is. And it's a ton of hours and it's a lot of work. So Merit Styles, uh, this is an NDP MP, uh, is proposing Teddy's Law, which is a anti-declawing bill, which he's putting forward to prevent and prohibit non-essential cat declawing. Good, bad. I honestly did not know this was a real (laughs) thing. I Googled about it. About what, like, non I guess it's like to create a nice cat that doesn't scratch you. Is that the idea? Yeah. I mean, who's asking for this? I'm going to come on the side of Good Bill on this. However, there's a big but at the end of this. But Good Bill, cat, like, cat declawing, according to the Humane Society, is really unethical. It's not like cutting your fingernails. The phrase on the Humane Society website is it's like for a human being, it would be like cutting off your finger. And to do it for non essential reasons that aren't medical seems does like i'm in favor of anything anti-animal cruelty however Merritt styles is the education critic in the official opposition this is her private members bill and you know what i i like think it's a good bill but like in a time when the education system has perhaps never been under more strain i i did scratch my head with this coming from Merritt styles who is a high-profile MPP who is the education critic and was under our government too. Again, is this what the legislature should be spending its time on? Fair enough. I'm a dog person, so I'm agnostic. I don't know. This uh, Ontario government seemed to messing around with cats and dogs and pit bulls and anti-clawing and... I don't know. I guess there's a lot of pet owners and this matters to people. So, But I mean, I guess part of the broader question with all of these bills, the PMBs, the opposition bills, the government bills, does it fit? Do these fit the right set of priorities in the legislature right now overall? What do we think this tells us about their priorities as political parties and what they think is important for people to focus on right now? What do we think about that? I'm like a little less down on it than you are, Chris. Like I think private members bills, like when they're at their best, actually are shining lights on issues that would never make the government's radar. Do you know what I mean? So they're always going to be random. And I would much prefer the substance of some of these than there were so many fucking ones that were like, name this day after this random event, things that were just symbolic in them borderline meaningless so i mean so i i think it's fine i think to the earlier discussion how the opposition parties use their motions i think should probably be more strategic and i think the ndp probably did a miss on starting off the commission discussion too early but but overall i think sick leave is clearly a vulnerability right like the government is feeling vulnerable on it they wouldn't be talking so much and trying new talking points and whatnot if they didn't think that it was cutting through so well done to all the opposition that have been using their tools to push that forward my read is very similar in that yeah i think it is the right priorities from the opposition i would change the order i but from the government i am extremely surprised and maybe they're they've made their hallmark introducing big legislation and passing it quickly. So I don't think that these two ones that we outlined earlier is what the government's legislative agenda is going to be for this term. But I was just amazed at how small ball the stuff from the government was because they control the calendar. They let, And it's like fixing WSIB premiums and reorganizing a bunch of like low level stuff in the government to make things a little bit more conservative. Like it just seemed like I saw clear priorities from the NDP and like 
some marginal support for business and developers from the PCs, which I guess checks out, but didn't read to me as like a big expansive vision for where we should go post pandemic. So lots there, although budget's coming. So that's, that's probably where they're going to park that stuff. Rapid fire? Yeah. So let's keep this quick. So another Canadian political figure has been caught flying down to warmer climates during the pandemic. Of course, I'm talking about Alberta-born Ted Cruz, who's renounced his Canadian citizenship, but is the senator of Texas, who on the advice of his wife and daughters, he claims after he threw them under the bus, that they needed to fly to Cancun and specifically the Ritz-Carlton Beach Resort because they were cold and there was no power in Texas. Tone deaf, very tone deaf. Did he not learn from Rod Phillips or anybody else who got in trouble for this? I mean, they were literally in the middle. Okay, of- but this is extra. It wasn't just a pandemic. He apparently showed no remorse for the pandemic <laughs> part at all because he was like out giving water bottles after foreign travel. But it was in the middle of a crisis. He they left because wow. of the crisis, right? They had no power. And yeah. there was that text group with his wife was on and another one of the moms in the text group leaked it to the press and said, and it said in the group, she wrote, it's cold in here. We don't have any power. We're going to Mexico. Who wants to come with us? <laughs> he better not get reelected. That's all I have to say. I hope the politics have finally turned on this. I'll just say people say that Canada doesn't have any good exports. And <laughs> that's a, it, like when Donald Trump said Mexico is not sending their best. I feel like he should have sent, spent more time on Canada. That's the. All right. Coming back to um, Ontario, but not out of Texas. It was leaked this week that Premier Ford took a meeting with the president of 7-Eleven when he was last in Texas and discussed how 7-Eleven wanted licenses to sell alcohol at its stores. But it wasn't just that they wanted to sell alcohol like you could at, you know, Le Depanier in Quebec. They also wanted to serve alcohol like a bar or a restaurant. So I guess the question is, you guys want to meet up for drinks at (laughs) 7-Eleven? So yes, only if we can uh, share a plate of taquitos and boneless chicken wings and maybe that pizza that looks really sketch. There for hours. Like, who eats that? I mean, unless you're super drunk or super high or whatever it is, or both. I mean, of all the fucking sketchy places that we can drink, 7-Eleven, the worst, do you know what I mean? Whatever. I don't yeah. care. <laughs> I mean, not against it, <laughs> Like, but also not what I want the Premier of Ontario spending uh, his or her time on. The fact that he was directly involved too, he took this meeting. I that for me was the weirdest bit. Like, like a pre, as a premier, you have staff, <laughs> ministries, a whole government of people that you could say, "Hey, minister of government and consumer services, minister of finance, send somebody to take this meeting. I want beer and Seven Elevens." <laughs> but Doug Ford went personally because it's a priority for his people, for the people. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> Well, that's it for the news segment this week. We're going to talk to you a little bit about Patreon, and we're going to come back and talk about the reach of the far right in Canada. So stick around. Hey, so before we head to the interview, I just want to talk about some of the ways that you can support the pod as a listener. So the first way is to go to patreon.com slash Ontario Loud and sign up for one of the tiers of support. This is a low monthly amount from $3 to $5 to more if you'd like that helps us do things like pay for our technology costs, our hosting costs, bring on more people to help with graphic design, with communications, 
with research uh, and ultimately allows us to do more and dream bigger as a pod. Thank you to those uh, of you who already do support. You've helped make this possible to date. And if you like what you're hearing and you haven't yet, uh, head to patreon.com slash Ontario Lab today. You can also head to the iTunes store and leave us a star review and even better, write something in the comment about how you like the pod. This helps us greatly with the iTunes algorithm, which helps the pod generally. Understand times are tough. Uh, if you don't have cash, head to the iTunes store and leave us a review. All right, that's enough housekeeping. On to the interview. Welcome back to Ontario Loud. Today, we're going to be continuing the conversation on hate that we began last week, focusing on the reach and scope of the far right in Ontario and Canada more broadly. In the Trump and post-Trump era, far right extremist movements in Western countries have become more visible, more prominent, and I think to the mainstream seem more dangerous than I think many politicians, journalists, and commentators uh, would have believed previously. However, a common thread in most conversations that I've been a part of in Canada about the far right is that it's an American problem, or mostly an American problem. The implication being somehow that we are some kind of progressive, diverse, hate-free oasis up here. That is sadly not so. So today we want to ask the question of how organized these movements are in their own, how organized these movements are in our own backyard, how close we are or could be to an incident, maybe like we saw in January in the U.S. Capitol, and just to help us and hopefully understand some of these movements a little bit better. And to help us walk through this, I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Barbara Perry to the pod. Dr. Perry is the director of the Center on Hate bias and extremism at Ontario Tech University. She's also the co-chair of the International Network for Hate Studies uh, and has appeared on media outlet large and small. Uh, Dr. Perry, welcome to Ontario Loud. Hi, good to be with you. Great to have you. I want to maybe get started with the question sort of at a high level. So I was looking at some of the the research that the center has contributed to. And uh, there's an environmental scan that was produced by the Institute for Strategic Dialogue that cited over 6,600 right-wing extremist channels, pages, groups, and accounts were found in Canada across seven social media platforms. So when you think about the penetration of right-wing extremist groups into society in Ontario or Canada. How do you think of where we sort of, how do we measure where we currently stand? Well, it's a moving target. <laughs> so it's really hard to measure where we stand. Uh, when we published our first report in 2015, we identified just over 100 active groups across the country. And we've been estimating more recently closer to 300 active groups uh, across the country. And that's online, offline groups that can be as small as three or four people in a small community to some of the online forums. There are thousands of people that are wouldn't consider themselves members of the group, but certainly are consumers, shall we say, of their messaging. Yeah. So it's it's a real challenge, I think, to count the groups uh, because they do, there's a lot of schisming and a lot of fracturing. What's what's a concrete number today is it's a different number tomorrow. But I, I think around that 300 is probably what we're seeing, you know, vacillation up and down. But on average, that's probably what we're seeing, which is sadly, it's, it's kind of proportionate to the numbers in the United States. And absolute numbers, obviously a lot lower, but, you know, relative to population, it's it's very similar. So I think that that's disturbing and surprising to a lot of people. Yeah, certainly. I think that that is something that does not go sort of hand in hand with the narrative that we see around the subject. So I, I noticed a lot of the research looks at Canada as a whole, and Canada is a big, diverse place. I know there's activity in Alberta that might look really different from Ontario. For our listeners who are a lot who are mostly based in Ontario, are there any sort of particular flavors to what 
hate groups in Ontario look like? What are the kind of Ontario problems that we deal with? Or are we kind of like largely reflective of what we see across the country? Well, there are a lot of narratives that are shared across the country. I think the outlier, Ontario is not the outlier. The outlier is Quebec. It is very different than the other provinces in terms of its connections to and its similarity to what we hear in terms of European discourses of ethno-nationalism in particular. The other provinces are, are, there's again, very similar narratives around immigration, around Muslims. There's some areas where there's more conversation about Indigenous people. We're seeing a lot of anti trans and anti-gay narratives emerging again within the movement across the country. And of course, the pandemic is something that is, 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 I think, buoyed up by the conspiracy theories that we hear so much about. And again, they're across the country. But of course, in the provincial context of Ontario, the target there is, is Ford. What they share is a, a targeting of, of Trudeau as to blame for the slow response, but also to some extent sort of tying that up with liberal policies around immigration. If we didn't let all these other people in, we closed our borders, we wouldn't have this problem, that sort of thing. So again, you see that across the board. So I, I would say that there's probably more that Ontario shares with the, the rest of, of Canada in terms of its narratives, as opposed to what, what distinguishes it. I mean, the same groups that we see elsewhere, Soldiers of Odin, Proud Boys, The Base, Adam Waffen, Three Percenters that we see elsewhere, we, we see in, in Ontario, obviously. So not a, a lot to distinguish them. I think if we think about the in Ontario where we see the the concentration it tends to be the GTA and westward and some in Ottawa as well mm-hmm. and I think that, that has a lot to do with the fact that that is the part of the the country a if we're talking about just the GTA it's the most diverse so there's the most reason for anxiety amongst those who are afraid of losing their privilege their status their superior positioning and then west of the GTA is where we've seen the most recent change so you know these are communities to the west of Toronto that have been homogeneously white, Christian, European. And now we're seeing a, a lot of people migrating out from the GTA into some of those more, not not rural, but, you know, smaller, smaller cities, Western Ontario cities. So there's, there's, there's a resistance to that amongst some portions of the population, that that cultural change, that demographic change that is, is perceived as a threat. Yeah. And that's something that I think would support Prize and is definitely, I think, a, a little bit of a stick in the wheel of the Canadian narrative, which is very much that diversity will eliminate racism and ethnonationalism and all these sort of things sort of writ large for the GTA to kind of be the center of it actually does sort of surprise me. But it makes sense. We're the most people and we are the most diverse. And so if you're anxious about that, it would be the GTA where that activity would rise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely I think uh, a lot of what we're we're seeing there. Again, it's it's uh, it's a resistance to mm-hmm. that change, uh, and this is what you know the far right is right. When we define it, we think about it in terms of a reactionary movement trying to turn the tide back, trying to turn the clock back uh, in terms of the strides that have been made by traditionally marginalized communities, including women. I mean, they're yeah. anti-feminist as well, and anti-woman and misogynistic as well as being being racist. Absolutely. And so I think when a lot of people think of like a far right movement, they think of the somebody sitting in a rural community who might be like have tattoos and neo-Nazi 
like the kind of people that you see in movies. One of the things I really liked in the research that I read was there are, you identify a couple different groups. And I'm wondering if you can paint for us maybe a little picture of who the most common kinds of right-wing extremists that we are dealing with in an Ontario context would be. What, what would they look like? Yeah. Well, I mean, there are some that fit the description that you just mm-hmm. offered. I mean, we do still have uh, very much a traditional neo-Nazi movement that is is afoot, across, again, across the country. So we do still see some of those who show up in their, their black leather jackets with the yeah. patches and, and all of that. But but we also see, I, I think there's a couple of directions to take here. One is just to talk, first of all, about the demographic shifts that we're seeing and that what you described is also a young movement, right? 17 to 24, you might see some people who stay in if they're leaders in particular, because there's some status uh, associated with that. So they might stay in until their 30s. But, you know, traditionally, the far right has been that, that younger movement. Now we're seeing a demographic shift upwards. So we're seeing far more middle-aged and older people coming to the movement, again, across the across the country. We're also seeing people who are tend to be better educated. So they're not those high school dropouts, so those disenfranchised youth, but sort of well-educated, university-educated folks who should know better and, yeah. and, and well-employed, right? So yeah. not unemployed and underemployed, but not just blue-collar anymore, but blue-collar as well as white-collar professionals. You see that especially in that that element that refers to themselves as the alt-right. I don't like that term. There's nothing alternative about them. They share that same ethno-nationalist, white supremacist core in terms of the narrative. That what's alternative is their presentation of self, right? They're not in those black jackets. They're in their Perry Ellis shirts, as has become so popular. They are much more um, articulate in their their construction and their narratives, all of that sort of thing. So that's what's alternative about them. But that's an important part of the of the movement right now. So we've got those folks on the spectrum. We've also got, and this is something that has become much more explicit over the last five or six or seven years, is a core anti-Muslim element as well, that that is really the focus, often interlaced with immigration because it's those immigrants that they're worried about, that those immigrants, right, the Muslims who they see as posing the the greatest threat to their 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 culture, yeah, um, their heritage. And so you've got that. You've got the accelerationists. I mean, that's probably one of the most worrying elements that we're seeing, and that's the base in Adam and the really violent groups that are dedicated to fomenting or accelerating, as the name suggests, right? The the what for them is the inevitable civil war, whether that's an all-out civil war or the more traditional Rahoa racial holy war, depends on the group very often. And what we saw on January 6th in D.C., many of them were accelerationists. They were celebrating. If they weren't there, they were online celebrating. This is the beginning. This is the beginning of the civil war. And so they're really dangerous. They're armed. They're angry. uh, They're aggressive. They're violent. They promote violence. They, They scare me. Yeah. And I think the last piece that I'll mention is sort of the manosphere. And we often don't think about gender in the context of the far right, but it's it's always been a part of the movement. I say that from their perspective, you can't you can't guarantee the purity of the white race if you can't control your women. So they're very patriarchal, if not misogynistic in their orientation as well, that there's a particular place and role for women in society, but but also within the movement. So it's important to recognize that piece uh, as well. So they are they are quite diverse with points of intersection. One thing you said earlier that I want to come back to is, and it jumped in on me in the research, is that 
it seemed to me that discussion of Justin Trudeau dominating some of the online discussion was a point of of interest in that opposition to a political mainstream can be as important for these groups as opposition to diversity or opposition to changing norms. And I think I th- it took me interesting because we're a fairly center left podcast. And I my frustration with Trudeau often is that he seems a little too status quo. He's a white man who sticks in the middle of the political spectrum and that's how he views his strength. Now, what does he represent to these people that makes them so mad? Because I have I have friends on the left who look at him and are mad for extremely different reasons. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you have to, I, this is a really scary place to be, but put your put yourself in their heads for a while, uh, yeah. especially in this context, right? I mean, what has given rise to this movement in North America more than Trump? His narratives, his discourses, his vilification of a whole array of communities is really what has provided a, a big part of the foundation for this this rapid growth of the movement here. So if you're a Canadian far right person, adherent, you are very likely to be very much swayed by Trump, to be a Trump fan. And so for them, Trump, uh, Trudeau rather, is the antithesis of that, right? He's the antichrist to Trump's Christ, where Trump is seen as the just the state of the white race. Trudeau, for them, is not a centrist. He is so far left from their yeah. perspective, right? Be- and, they, and they associate him with all these policies that have threatened them in terms of immigration, multiculturalism, all of those sorts of things that, that his father was also sort of reviled for two generations ago, three generations ago. So I think that that's a big part of it is that he is the antithesis of that. So they are so far right. He appears to be so far left and there's resistance to that. And I mean, that's just the way that he is, he's characterized. And I think, and you sort of move that into the context of the pandemic as well. I mean, that has really exacerbated the problem to the extent that he is sort of seen to be at the the foundation of all these restrictions on our liberties, that it's him that is responsible for the the lockdowns and the mask, um, the mandatory masks and the vaccines and all that sort of thing, which of course they see as constraining their ability to move and be in the world as as they would like to be. And then, I mean, you just add in the broader QAnon conspiracy, right? That all, all states, all governments that aren't Trump's government are all part of this great cabal, right? Yeah. Sexual predators and yeah, whatever. Part of the great, that movement towards the great the one world order. So he's he's part of that conspiracy, clearly. Yeah, no, for sure. It is just, it is interesting to me because unlike the the United States where there are two parties and it makes sense that the, the right wing movement would necessarily revile the left-wing party in a country where there are two left-wing parties it is the more centrist of the two that gets the most ire like i don't see as much traffic around jagmeet singh despite the fact that he is a left-wing leader who is uh part of a religious and racial minority himself and a champion for those communities and it it, it struck me as odd that it was justin trudeau that got the most ire here but i think uh, think that they sort of discount saying right he's he's yeah he's leftist he's he's racialized all of those things but he's not he's not the prime minister he's not a threat he, and i think they don't see him as viable as a, as a as a leader so i think they just they dismiss him rather than attacking him which is yeah i mean you're absolutely right right though he would make just a, other uh circumstances i think would have been ripe for targeting not to say that he hasn't been but just oh. like we've seen trudeau yeah 
Yeah. And maybe even like a bit of, there are, there are probably layers in, in that, that sociologists and anthropologists could like dive into for years. Want to just ask you two quick more things. So Canada just listed the Proud Boys and three other right-wing extremist groups on the list of terror organizations. Jagmeet Singh had been pushing this for, for quite some time. And so when you look at this move by the Canadian federal government, how effective do you think steps like this are? And what other strategies should we be looking at as a country to limit the power, the reach, the influence of these movements in Canada? Mm, yeah, I mean, so, we, how, how many days do we have now? Uh, yeah, I mean, so much to say in in, in that context. And one mm-hmm. is, I, I wish that we turned the narrative around and said, we have designated the base in Adamwaffen, and, and oh, oh, by the way, the Proud Boys as well. Because uh, the base in Adamwaffen are far more violent than the Proud Boys have, have been, or I think even would would aspire to be. So I, I think that I'm, I'm a little ambivalent. I mean, I think it was a good move symbolically yeah. in the sense that it's the one mechanism that we have by which to say this is not acceptable. This is not something that, that we will tolerate or abide in in Canada. So I think in, in that respect, practically, pragmatically, I don't know what effect it will have because the, the biggest tool there is that you can seize their, seize their, their finances these folks don't have a lot of finances to freeze. So pragmatically, that's not going to make a difference. Now, it might, some people have, in fact, gone running from the groups after that designation. That's not what they signed on for, to be known or affiliated with, with this group, because, of course, that is also uh, subject to, uh, to prosecution to support yeah. those groups. It will have deterred some, but I think it will harden the resolve of those who stay in. So it's sort of a double-edged sword in, in that respect. And it feeds into their victim mentality, right? Oh, you're silencing us now. So that's problematic. And many have raised the the question about expanding our understanding of terrorism, given the the way that it's been used uh, primarily against racialized communities and and not white supremacist uh, communities. So we have to be very careful uh, about that. But I, I still do think that it was important in many respects. But it's it's a first step. I don't let's not think that we've solved the problem. We're done. Let's move yeah. on. What's the next problem? It it really does nothing in terms of the broader movement. Again, as I said, I think it embitters people even further in some respects. Absolutely. So yeah, there I mean there are a number of other strategies. Some of them are criminal justice oriented in terms of enforcing the terrorism legislation when they engage in terrorist acts, like we saw Bizanet, like we saw Manassian. No terrorism charges there. Propaganda offenses, right? And promotion of hatred. Why aren't we using that more consistently? But it's not just a criminal justice issue either. In fact, I think that there are other approaches that are much more uh, effective. I think the given that so much of, of the recruitment and the engagement is online, I think the first step is to enhance our critical digital literacy, right? What... When we when we when we retweet things, we're not really paying attention to what we've retweeted very often, and we're spreading yeah. narratives that we don't necessarily uh, agree with, or that we do agree with, yeah. uh, then circulating in the in the mainstream. So I think that that is so important. I won't say easy enough, but easier when we're talking about youth. The challenges with this different demographic, right, with the older folks. How do we engage them? Yeah. Um, so I think we need to look to the the labor movement there and what they're doing in terms of workplace action, that sort of thing. So I think that's really important. And, and it really is about engaging those narratives, whether it's sort of 
trying to stem recruitment or stem people who are being groomed from going all the way down or helping to pull people out. Groups like Life After Hate, for example, very important <clears throat> Excuse me, in that work. I think civil society and education and public health, virtually every sector of society has an important role uh, to play in challenging the far right. Certainly. And uh, I, I think of the online aspect of it, it as being super important in that, like, I think there are like plenty of our, our podcast is called Ontario Loud, which is kind of a, a parody of Ontario Proud. But there is an interesting and not calling Ontario Proud a far right group, but like the like the first step in that funnel, like you can go on that website and see funny memes about it being cold in the winter. And then all of a sudden you're getting this anti-Trudeau stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you're getting this. And during the federal election, there was a ton of anti-immigrant stuff, which if a far right group is looking at the comments there and finding the people who are the most hateful, like those people can get reached out to, like it's, it's never been easier. And it's, I, I, I look at the percentage of people who support the conservative party who also support Trump as an interesting mm-hmm. proxy for here. Cause it's the, the margins of Canadian society, but with a pretty major political institution that they are well represented in. I guess I want to close with uh, maybe, cause this has been a, a conversation that certainly spooked me preparing for it spooked me as well. Is there anything right now that is giving you cause for, as someone who looks at this around the world and in Canada, uh, cause for optimism? Mm. <laughs> and no no is an acceptable answer yeah no i think i think what the the sort of the one hope i have i mean obviously there are far more people who are are just as disgusted with these ideologies and narratives as as you and i are i think there there are still more of us that are again rather than than with them so and and i think the other thing is the extent to which and this varies regionally, as I'm beginning to understand. But in, in Ontario, anyway, the media have been very receptive to conversations about the far right and the risks and, and the deconst- trying to deconstruct some of their narratives. And I think that that is really valuable to have the, have those views aired and, and picked apart, if you will. Now, as I understand it from talking to colleagues uh, out West, for example, there's not that same appetite uh, for having those conversations. So I think that uh, we need to somehow infect other parts of the country with that same enthusiasm for for the cause, if you will. So that's encouraging to me. I think that that media, it, you know, we're having public conversations about this. It's not that it's swept into the corner as we were seeing when we were doing our, our work in, gosh, almost 10 years ago now. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Well, Dr. Barbara Perry, thank you so much for joining Ontario Loud. If folks want to check out the center at Ontario Tech for hate, bias, and extremism, we will put a link on the website. And thank you for all your work. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Great. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it. And that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Ontario Loud. We are a podcast about politics and public policy focused on Ontario. Ontario Loud is hosted by Grumatawar Kapoor, Alvin Tejo, and Sam Andre. I'm Chris Martin. We are supported by amazing volunteers uh, and Harmon Mundy, who helps us do research and communications. He also sends us lots of funny memes in the group chat. Fahim Khan helps us do communications and social media. And we are so grateful for their support. If you like what you heard, go to iTunes and give us a review or head to patreon.com slash Ontario Loud and support the pod for less than the price of a cup of coffee each month. It's easy. It helps us support our costs like hosting and technology and helps us keep doing this thing for the long term. If you have any thoughts on what you heard, get at us on Twitter at Ontario Loud, on Instagram at Ontario Loud Podcast, or Ontario Loudmail at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Last but certainly not least, Ontario Lab is recorded on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, Anishinaabeg, Chippewa, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat people and many nations. 
Toronto is governed by Treaty 13, and it is important to acknowledge that too often in our settler colonial society, we make conscious and unconscious attempts to erase uh, this history, and we must do everything we can to fight that. It's about more than a land acknowledgement, but uh, we want to end the pod with one. And we stand in solidarity with the First Nations uh, in our community and acknowledge that we have so much more to do and pledge to do what we can on this podcast to uh, further their cause. That's it for us, and we will see you next week.